D.L. Mayfield. And I'm Crispin Mayfield. And this is the Prophetic Imagination Station Podcast. Where we discuss evangelical media from the 80s and 90s to understand how it impacted us and our generation. This season, we're talking about DC Talk's album, Jesus Free. Danielle's book release day for her book about Dorothy Day. And we are talking about Jesus Freak mm-hmm. this season. And so there is going to be a connection here for sure. If you grew up wanting to be a Jesus Freak, that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. But we also really wanted to celebrate Danielle's book release. Also, it is our 100th episode. Oh my gosh, is it? Yes, which I just told you now. <laughs> Wow. Okay, well, this is also a good time to say that I always tell you that we need to do more intros to our podcast. And you're like, no, I don't. Then it turns out people don't even know we're married <laughs> to each other. That is on the list today. I was like, after we record this episode, we need to record an actual intro okay. for this season. <laughs> because other people were like, oh, I was like really thrown off by like where you went with this episode. Really? Well, just someone was surprised by all the criticism. But, you know. You, oh, my gosh. If you hang around long enough, you that's not surprising. Oh, we criticized Christian culture. Mm-hmm. Oopsies. <laughs> Oopsies. Well, now everybody knows. Yeah. And a bunch of people tuned in and listened to our first episode on Jesus Freak, which was really nice. Um, and we're going to get back to that. Mm-hmm. But- we have some wonderful interviews. Next episode, we're going to be talking about the song, So Help Me God. So help me, God. Oh, no. Cut that. (laughs) So, yeah, we're excited about that. But today we're going to celebrate Danielle's book release and celebrate the 100th episode Mm -hmm. and talk about um, what happens when you really want to be a Jesus freak and then uh, where it can go from there, I guess. Oh, my gosh. So, but I figured we could start by you explaining explaining in your own words who Dorothy Day is just to get some folks caught up. Yeah. Okay. So I write as D.L. Mayfield and the book I just published today, the day you're listening to this probably, is called Unruly Saint, Dorothy Day's Radical Vision and His Challenge for Our Times. And And it is the best biography of, it is the most readable biography of Dorothy Day. Danielle's not saying that. I'm saying that. Wow. Well, you just finished it. Like seconds ago, <laughs> so <laughs> take Crispin's thoughts with also, a grain I've of never, salt. Also, I've never read any other <laughs> biographies, but I feel like I've tried and I didn't. So, okay, the proof is in the pudding. I don't know. I this is why I'm like I like writing books. I don't like talking about the books I write. Mm-hmm. So it's hard for me to sum up who Dorothy Day is. But she basically helped found like founded the Catholic Worker Movement, which is like the social justice leftist Catholic, you know, thing. The first really to happen in America. Obviously, there's been lots of other movements throughout the world before that and then after her time period. But my book is centered on 1933 when she starts her radical monthly newspaper called The Catholic Worker. And basically... It's about marrying your like her love of justice, the common man, the common worker, like all these socialist, anarchist, and eventually even like communist ideas 
about labor that she had with uh, the Catholic faith. She ended up converting to Catholicism in her 30s, which just shocked all her radical friends because she was like this big bohemian writer person. And yeah, so um, it's kind of what it's about. Mm-hmm. But also, I've, I mean... I've just been obsessed with Dorothy Day for a really long time, and I ended up writing a book about her. Yeah, I was looking today on Facebook mm-hmm. for old pictures of you from, like, over 12 years ago, because uh-huh. you had this button that had a Dorothy Day quote on it that uh-huh. said, what, if you have two coats, you've stolen one from the poor? Yep, and I wore it on my coat. I only had one coat, and so I felt really good about that, and I got that button at a Shane Claiborne event. I was going to say, I was going to mention that, that, that you found out about Dorothy Day from Shane Claiborne. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of helps maybe give some kind of like context if you're not familiar with Dorothy Day and you're like, who's, you know, I'm not Catholic. Like, I don't know who this person is. Um, she is someone that was like, when we think about like evangelicalism and uh, Shane Claiborne's role in that. Uh, she was like the original version of that for Catholics, right? In a way, I guess so. Because I mean, you think very convoluted and funny way of putting it. Yes, but but, I mean, you think about like Shane Claiborne and creating the simple way and this like intentional community, right? She was doing that in the thirties, right? Creating communities where people shared bread, shared community, and the poor were taken care of. Yeah, and I think like in like social justice Christian world. Um, you will find so many quotes from Dorothy Day or stories about Dorothy Day sprinkled in all these things. So Shane Claiborne does write about her a lot. Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, you know, all, all these people. We were just talking about Me Without You, a band that we love, uh-huh. um, has a has a song titled Dorothy, which seems to be. Ref- I don't know, because the song's really about his dad. But he does mention an activist in that song who was a part of the Plowshares movement. And Dorothy Day's granddaughter was arrested with that movement. So I'm like, maybe it's about Dorothy Day. But I'm sure he knows who Dorothy Day is if they grew up in Philadelphia in these, com- you know, like Christian right. communes. So, yes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm like, that's where I heard the name. That's how I heard about Dorothy. But then I just kind of t- took the obsession a little bit further, <laughs> I guess, than most people. Mm-hmm. It's been a long time coming, though. I mean. Yeah, it's been a long time. Yeah. So would you say Dorothy Day was a freak for Jesus? <laughs> wow. What a great segue, Crispin. What a good way would to you, talk okay. about my book during this season. Let me ask you this. There, there's a reason I didn't say Jesus freak. Okay. Was she a freak for Jesus or was she a freak for the poor? Oh my gosh, stop it. You're ruining everything. <laughs> You're ruining Dorothy Day's legacy. No, I'm just kidding. Because <laughs> you can't say Jesus freak or a poor freak. What? No. What? So. Yeah. Okay. So was Dorothy Day a Jesus freak? I mean, I, what's so interesting is like, I don't know how to talk about Dorothy Day. And I think before I studied her and wrote an entire book on her and read every book written on her, basically, and all the b- books and letters and diaries she wrote herself, I'd be like, oh, I think I know. How to answer anything about Dorothy Day. Now I don't. And I think that's actually good. I think, you know, she's a really complicated person and I can't speak for her. What I will say is somebody who was raised to be a Jesus freak. So we've already explored that a little bit in this season, but like mm-hmm. the album, DC Talks album, Jesus Freak was so important to me. I was literally prophesied over that. I'd be a martyr. Like I was going to be a missionary. Like you know, I was all in, all in, all in. 
The fact that I ended up getting really obsessed with Dorothy Day, I think, is a direct line from my early childhood and being raised to think, yes, I'm going to give it all for God, for missions. And then what's funny is like my story is I did start working with refugees and, you know, trying to evangelize them. But what ended up happening is I became radicalized because I saw how awful it was to be poor in the United States, right? And I had always heard, like, this is the greatest country. You can go over to other countries and help them because there's poor people. But then working, and again, I was a very sheltered, autistic, homeschooled, so don't get too mad at me for not knowing about all these things. Like, I did the best I could, and then I was just shocked, especially, you know, to experience what it was like for people who were you know, black from Africa, who, you know, weren't from a literate culture, who were poor, who were traumatized, who were Muslim, like, seeing how Portland, Oregon, which is supposedly like this really liberal, progressive city, treated these new neighbors, right? I was like, oh my gosh, is this the bad place? Like, what's going on? You know, there's, Mm -hmm. there's inequality, extreme inequality, it's getting worse. And, um, I was also in Bible college at the time, and I was just thinking about this because, Crispin, do you remember that sign outside the library? And me and Crispin met at a conservative evangelical Bible college, okay? So let's just put that out there. And the library plays an important role. I worked at the library. And I came and hung out at the library every time you worked. I would work until 11 p.m., and he would just hang out. Uh It was very cute. He was so cute. I never thought anybody was cute. But I thought you were really cute. And lots of boys hung out at the library to talk to me, let me tell you. (laughs) And I was very rude to all of them except Crispin. Although I did glare at you, but you kept coming. And we're not talking about that, though. Do you remember the plaque outside of the library? Don't you folks read your Bibles? Yes. John G. Mitchell, right? Uh And that's what the library is named after this guy. I mean, he looks like every guy who says they know what the Bible means in the 50s. Okay? Glasses, white man. And yeah, the quote said, don't you folks ever read your Bibles? And that's like was drilled into us. Like, read your Bibles, read your Bibles. Well, jokes on them, I did. Okay. (laughs) And I read the New Testament Mm -hmm. and the Old Testament too. Let's not get it twisted. They Mm -hmm. both are very radical, like scriptures for any, anybody to like engage with. But reading the, reading the words of Jesus and then being the red letters <laughs> being a red letter I'm christian so, and then that's a dc talk reference as well and shane claymore it's all uh, coming right, back yes. it's all coming back um <laughs> i was like this is like literally what jesus is talking about he's very concrete about how to help people to you know give food to people who are hungry like if people don't have enough clothes like give them clothes like when they're sick visit them in the hospital if they go to prison like visit them in prison and overthrow the prison too you know abolish it (laughs) um and but none none of the christians in my life like wanted to talk about those issues it's literally like go try and convert them Mm -hmm. maybe do some charity work and i was like but this whole system seems incredibly messed up like What's going on? And the other thing that happened was I, I really felt like, oh, man, I feel so much more comfortable and at home in these communities. And and the way I would describe it for a long time was like I even experienced Christ in these poor apartments with, you know, Muslim 
refugees than I do at my Bible college, right? Surrounded by people who are supposedly pouring over the scriptures, but are not engaged, right, with the realities of the world. And they don't seem like they really want the world to change that much, except they want people to be converted to Christianity. And I was just like, what's happening? And would you say that you had you had sort of a formation of that before you read Dorothy Day? Oh, I mean, so I mean, I'm experiencing all this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And and one thing that is hard is when you're in these systems. So I was like the golden child of white evangelicalism, right? Because I was really intense, hyper religious, and I'm doing all the things you're supposed to do if you take it seriously. I went to Bible college, paid a lot of money to become a missionary. I was trying to convert Muslim refugees. I was, you know, championing helping people in charity work and starting all these clubs. And and then what was really happening was like I was having this huge crisis of faith in both my country and my religion, right? Because mm-hmm. neither of them seemed to be good news for anybody who wasn't exactly like me. And I couldn't say any of that. And I couldn't say like, actually, my new neighbors are teaching me a million times more than I'm teaching them. I'm learning so much about my country, our history, um, like literally how my city is laid out is immoral and unethical. I learned about redlining. You know, I learned about all these things and there's just nobody I could talk to about it. Like nobody I could talk like my cognitive dissonance through. Um, And I felt really lonely. And I knew if I said any of these things I felt, I would be labeled a heretic. You know, I would lose all my status. I would lose all my community, like all of it. Mm-hmm. And so then when I eventually read Dorothy Day, you know, a few years into living and working with refugee populations in the U.S., um, like her autobiography is literally called The Long Loneliness. So that's what I did. Mm-hmm. After I got into her button, I got her autobiography, The Long Loneliness. And I mean, the title alone was like, yes, like mm-hmm. here we go. And then like the title kind of speaks to if you're going to try and follow Jesus seriously and, and like take it seriously, like you are going to be lonely. And mm-hmm. I don't know. That really yeah. spoke to me. So I found community. I've always found community through books and writers when I can't really find it in my actual life. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering uh, what it, what was Dorothy's uh, rule of life? Well, I mean, I kind of, you know, picked up pieces of that. But, you know, to seek the face of Christ in the poor. And yeah. to write every day, like she was into writing. So mm-hmm. those are two things that were very important to me as well. And yeah, she, I think she made me feel less lonely, but also as like a, a just sort of a good transition place for me to transition out of idolizing like missionary stories and missionary biographies into mm-hmm. like social justice Christian. And I didn't, like, it never even crossed my mind that she was Catholic. I was like, no, she's one of us. She's uh-huh. a radical Christian. You know, it's very... Uh, Lucy Goosey Protestant of me to not really take her Catholicism into that much account. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. In her, like, so you're talking about like going from like being the golden child mm-hmm. um, of evangelicalism, then transitioning, right? And then like just kind of finding new mentors or new heroes. Yeah. Right. Dorothy being one of them. Um, I think in, in Dorothy's writing, she quotes St. Teresa of Avila saying never rest never rest there's no peace on earth mm-hmm. and i wonder i wanted to ask you like how that quote lands with you hearing 
hearing that and hearing that that was important to Dorothy. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because Dorothy has lots of quotes that she loved and references constantly. And I think it's a little hard for me now. I'm 38 years old and, you know, I dedicated my life to Jesus when I was six years old. And I am burnt the F out. Like, I can't do it anymore. I can't. I, I literally cannot do any of the things I used to do. I can keep my kids safe and fed and clothed and loved and cared for. You know, I can be a good partner to you. That's it. Like, that's it. That's all I got right now. And so those quotes land hard for me because I have been a really driven person. And I, and I think driven within Christianity and activism and of course, I'm not comparing myself to Dorothy Day because she was so much more intense than me and so did so much more than me. But, you know, I took a real swing at trying to be like Dorothy Day and did a lot of things and worked really, really, really hard. And the work was so overwhelming that I thought to rest was to sort of betray all the people that were already suffering in America. And if I, a privileged, you know, white person rested, then that was just a betrayal of the harsh reality of living in our country. And so I think what's hard now is like thinking about how driven I was and how that was just seen as like a really positive thing by everybody. And and even Christians, if I wasn't critiquing the church too much right then mm-hmm. i was still really seen as like that's a really hard worker that's somebody who's you know advocating for refugees and all this stuff when really i think my drivenness came out of a lot of desperation and it's kind of hard to think about in mm-hmm. retrospect mm-hmm. do you want to talk about the desperation like what that desperation was i uh, i think i think yeah i think um sort of taking a step back from like the Christianity Christianese of it all. Cause I've just, I've just been steeped in that world my whole life. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been thinking a lot about people who maybe we, we can call them like existential thinkers, right? You just think about mm-hmm. the problems of the world, these big issues and, and like it kind of ebbs and flows along with like mental illness, you know, like there's <laughs> existential OCD, which my therapist, you know, told me I have and all, all this stuff. So I'm like, starting to figure out some of my stuff is like obviously related to childhood stuff mental health stuff and and being undiagnosed autistic is a huge part of this too so always feeling like I didn't quite get it or I wasn't quite fitting in or I was trying to read my bible trying to take it seriously and then being shocked when Christians got really mad at me or and I was Mm -hmm. do you remember when we moved into low-income housing surrounded by refugees and immigrants I was shocked nobody else moved in with us. Like uh-huh. all of our friends from Bible college. I was uh-huh. like, everybody's going to do this, right? Right? Mm-hmm. And then it wasn't. It, yeah. it didn't happen. So, and I, I just feel like I've always been like, this is what you have to do when you take it seriously. And so even things like when I saw Dorothy Day's button, like if you have two coats, you should give one to the poor. Or you have stolen one from the poor. Mm-hmm. See, that's even more intense than you should give one to the board, right? You have yeah. stolen from the bar. And like, that's some like really rigid black and white thinking. And autistic people are really drawn to that mm-hmm. because it gives you a sense of safety. You can be like, I know there's inequality in the world. Mm-hmm. So what can I do? Only have one coat. Mm-hmm. If you have one coat, then you have not stolen from the poor. 
Yeah. So you are doing good. You're a good person. And I don't think that's like all of my motivation, but that was like a lot of it. Mm. And these rigid rules for how to be a good person. I found them in fundamentalist evangelical Christianity and I found them in social justice Christianity. And Dorothy is a huge part of that story in my own life. Yeah. When I think about you and Dorothy, I think of like this message of like if everyone would pitch in, like this would be possible. Yeah. Right. And it's it's almost like uh, this me- this image comes to me of like a field. Right. And here's this field that needs to be harvested. Uh, I don't mean that in an evangelistic way. I just like we're just running with this okay. metaphor. Okay. I really- <laughs> and, you know, whether it's you or Dorothy, you like have a couple of people and you're like, all right, let's go. Like if everybody does a little bit, we can cover this field. And then nobody else comes. And then you spend like all day and night just like trying to harvest this field. Because I think that is like the message you've had. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that fits with Dorothy, but it's this idea of like, if everybody would change their life a little bit, like reorient their life. Yeah. um, Then there could be justice. And then other people don't. And then you end up like having to give up everything to try to fill in the gap. I don't know if that resonates or not. Yeah, I think so. I think what's what's true about Dorothy, and I think it's also true about myself, is like there's just several layers, right? Because Dorothy is like a complex human, just like we all are. And so, you know, there's several layers to her movement and the work she did. Um, and it's fascinating looking at her because she is in the process to be a canonized saint in mm-hmm. the Catholic Church. And that's been fascinating to see how different people are for that and other people are not for that and just what that will do for Dorothy. And, and I've already seen like a... It's troubling, but not like surprising trend, right, of these men within the Catholic Church, within that framework and system, right, really flattening Dorothy's life into something which is basically just a life of personal piety and devotion Mm -hmm. and just absolute adherence to the Catholic Church. And you're like, okay, I mean, personal, (laughs) personal piety and devotion was important to her. I'm not saying it's not. Well, I've compared it to – and. I recognize you've even wrestled a little bit with Dorothy's legacy around race, but um, I think a good example of that would be Dr. Martin Luther King, right? A similar thing of like, here's someone that had really intense views, really powerful work. And then in the public national consciousness, we're going to like cherry pick these things that Mm -hmm. sort of like fits into our national or Catholic like narrative. Yeah. And it's interesting because even like, even more intense than that is like it's just it's all on record like these these catholic priests literally say like yeah dorothy is going to be a great person to have on our side in the culture war against Mm. gay people and abortion so stuff like that i'm just like whoa like that's what this is all about like this sucks but again that personal piety devotion was a part of dorothy's life like dorothy Mm -hmm. was a very devout catholic did go to mass every day like did do all that stuff she also Right. Had this like huge FBI file on her because she was literally an enemy of the militarized state. Right. And like (laughs) first got on the government's radar. Well, first, I mean, so many things. Dorothy's had so many things happen to her. But specifically when it comes to like civil disobedience tied to her Catholic faith. Right. Mm -hmm. She first got on their radar when she started testifying before Congress saying like Catholics should be allowed to be conscientious objectors because of pacifism. Like, this is actually a part of the Catholic faith. And most Catholics at that point in the U.S. were like, no, 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 don't say that. Like, we're still the minority here and we're trying to be, 
in the majority, right? They want to be seen as very pro-America, like all this stuff. And so they're like, no. Um, and so then the FBI is like, hmm, who is this lady that is trying to encourage tons of people not to go to war for us? And, you know, she wrote about that in her paper and got in big, big trouble. And so I'm like, yeah, she, her writing was so freaking radical, especially mm-hmm. the early years of her paper. And that's kind of what I focus a lot in my book is because her story can just kind of get shiny, you know, with age. And like, she was just a really good Catholic and she never gave up. Like, that's two things mm-hmm. people really like about her. Like, she started the Catholic worker and she died the Catholic worker, you know, mm-hmm. 40 to 50 years later. Like, we like those kinds of stories. Unfortunately, like, I am not going to be one of those stories. I I don't think so anymore. Like, I'm not going to live and die in the same place or even the same iteration of faith that I've had. Like, and that's just a really interesting thing to come to terms with while I was writing this book about Dorothy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the things that you wrote was, uh, along these lines, she was desperate for Catholics to live up to their stated ideals. Mm-hmm. It was, which actually, in a lot of ways, like, again, is a, reminds me of Dr. King. Yes, he said he wanted to pin America, like, to what they said. Mm-hmm, exactly. Which then actually ends up, like, in this way of being, whether it's Catholic or, like, uh, kind of nationalistic, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. like then those narratives get actually get like used, right, to be like, oh, he really believed in these things. But when yeah. in a lot of ways it was like a really like a rhetorical device. Um, anyway, uh, it was a struggle that remained with her all her life and infused her writing with a particular kind of poignancy. Mm-hmm. So in all her writing, she was always trying to reconcile the Catholic stated faith with what she saw in that community, right? Yeah, and this this huge turning point came when she met Peter Morin, who was like this French peasant hobo philosopher, genius, uh, very eccentric person. Mm-hmm. And he was like, listen, all these papal encyclicals like from the Pope, like they care about the common worker and I will tell you about them. And... Like, have you heard about Catholic social teaching? Like, this has been around for forever, and it literally is all about the worker and helping them. And I have a three-point plan to change the world, um, and you can help me. We're going to tell people about Catholic social action. We're going to create house of hospitality, and we're going to, like, do back-to-the-land farm communes. And Dorothy's mm-hmm. like, okay, mm-hmm. let's do it. Yeah, it is really interesting because some of the priests, that she had contact with um, assumed that she was Catholic because of those social teachings, right? Yeah. And she was like, no, I had no idea. (laughs) The reason she became Catholic is very interesting. And, you know, I can't really sum it up here. I would say, I read my book because I do spend a lot of time with that. But I mean, some of what it boils down to is she was like, the Catholic Church is the church of the working poor. Mm-hmm. Like, and if you also, go to, like, a poor neighborhood, that's where people are... Yeah, Italian, Mexican immigrants, like, specifically that she was in, in contact with. And she was like, uh, well, somebody said it's the one true church, so that's... If I'm converting to Christianity, I'm I'm going to do the one true church. And so she did that. She likes concrete things, too. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting because I think like I think about that rhetoric or that like thinking of like it 
for people like you and I, where mm-hmm. it's like, well, it was in the church that or from the Bible that I learned these things. Mm-hmm. Right. And that was kind of her approach. And it just like it makes me wonder for her when she was like calling people to this. Do you think that it was centered in Catholicism? For Maybe you can't answer this. Mm-hmm. But do you think it was centered in her Catholicism and her faith? Or do you think it was like something bigger than that and she used her faith to call people to justice? Yeah, I think I think something important for me in my book was to say her heart for the common worker, for the masses, was always there, you know? Mm. And it was awakened by so many different things, including mostly like leftist thinkers, writers, and philosophers. Mm. And so... She carried that with her into Catholicism, and I think something really beautiful and different was birthed because of that. Um, But I, you know, now I'm just like, it is interesting. She found Catholicism and clung to it. And this is kind of similar to me and my thinking, too. It's like when you find something that works, you're like, yes, this is the right answer. Everybody should do it. And Peter Marin, you know, really helped give her this sort of like theological backing to what she had really hoped was true, which Mm -hmm. is that, yes, like my faith does have something to say for the issues of the day. And I'm just like, yeah, I I get that. And she, from the accounts I read, she was pretty surprised that most people did not convert to Catholicism. Like if they lived in the Catholic worker, Uh you know, she's just like, I'm not, I don't understand why, but she was an anarchist. And so it's not like they made it compulsory and they never made masses like you have to do this. And um, she did baptize her daughter, you know, Tamar, into the Catholic Church, hoping she would stay. And Tamar eventually left. And and the Catholic Church has been a source of, of great hurt to, you know, Dorothy's only child. And so it's very mm-hmm. complicated. And I do think she experienced grief of that. But it also seems like she was like, yeah, you can't force people. Like mm-hmm. to do mm-hmm. things, so I, I can't right. force people to be Catholic, but I am Catholic. Like, yeah, and that was something that was unique about the Catholic Worker House was many other Christian like uh, charities mm-hmm. would require things of people, right? Like whether it's listening to a sermon or sobriety, etc. And she... or even requiring people to bathe. Okay, uh-huh, Catholic yeah. workers were smelly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so we've been talking about, well, um, I wonder for you, you've kind of framed this like, and at least for a point of like anger of like y'all in the evangelical church have been telling me to listen to Jesus yeah, and I did that. And then you are mad at me for it or you're opposing me for it. I wonder for you, do you have that sense of like, this is where I learned it was in the church and from the Bible that I learned justice about justice. Or do you think that like, do you think that's something that would have been true about you no matter how you grew up? I mean, that's such a hard question because if you had asked me that like eight months ago, mm-hmm. I would have been like, yeah, that's totally where it came from. And now I'm like, I don't know, man. I don't know. Because even like when I was up until recently, like I'm just like running headfirst into being a social justice Christian. Like that's just the only way I can imagine my life. You know this. Mm-hmm. I've I've orchestrated every area of our life surrounding like being an ethical, good neighbor, 
person who loves Jesus and takes the words of Jesus seriously. Which is why the intro to our podcast for several years now has been your title as neighbor. I'm right or neighbor. It's just like, for me, so much of white evangelicalism and like progressive Christianity has still really focused on like, how can I... Danielle, be a good person and do good things and make the world a better place. And now I'm like, um, I, I come from white evangelicals who are literally trying to take over the country and turn it into a Christian fascist fascist country. Like, I probably don't have good ideas for how <laughs> to change the world or make it a better place. And I'm just going to do what people in my neighborhood who have been marginalized tell me to do like I'm no I'm no longer interested in like thinking of myself as a good person or a good neighbor and I and I have totally lost the desire to tell other people how to be good neighbors mm. and um Dorothy didn't lose that I want to say and um, I don't think she should have I'm not saying I'm just saying my life has taken a turn and and, I, and Dorothy's did it in in a way, you know. Yeah, and also I want to say for you, like, it is some some of it is a drive to be a good person, and like, yeah, I think both of us have that. And helping people. I'm not saying all that's bad. I'm not. Right. Well, no, I mean, like, I think there is a bad drive. Oh. <laughs> not a bad drive, but like this feeling, this like over this um leftover feeling of growing up in white evangelicalism mm-hmm. that my belonging is based on how holy I am. Yeah. Right. And I don't think that is a good thing. And I think that can drive us in ways that are not very helpful. Um, I, and so there's that piece. And I'm saying like probably everyone who's listening maybe knows at least a little bit about what that's like. Um, I'm not singling you out here. I think, though, that there's another piece, which is probably for you and Dorothy and for others, is when you are so aware of the suffering in the world, like this is a way of trying to to cope with that and yeah, deal I mean, with it and, and not in a – and respond to it. Yeah. I mean, it's like, again, going kind of back to that existential despair thing. It's like Dorothy had anxiety. Dorothy had bouts of depression. Dorothy had bouts of – whatever and you know there's so many people in our world who have this i have it you know if we want to call it the existential ocd and so think about the ways people deal with like i'm overwhelmed by the realities of the world which again is kind of like depression stuff um you know people do drugs people drink um people engage like have tons of sex and people become extremely religious and we don't talk about this like we don't talk about that this is a coping mechanism mm-hmm. that people do to deal with existential terror and dread like it's mm-hmm. just there like you can look at the science like i don't know if people listening to this are like i thought everybody has existential dread and terror well guess what not everybody does you're special um and you're probably coping with it in in a, you know a variety of ways and i up don't in- really i know <laughs> That's why we love you. I feel like existential dread people have to have very close relationships with people who don't have it in order to function. And that's like me and you. We just watched yesterday. We watched everything everywhere all at once. And that's actually one of the themes is like if you're one of the existential dread people, I hope the universe brings you somebody who's sweet and kind and doesn't have that. And I was like, oh, <laughs> 
That was why we tanked our Midnight Mass episode, because we talked about it. Oh, my existential dread was off the chart. And I was like, ah, I don't feel this at all. And like, probably neither of those positions were very helpful for someone who was outside listening. But but I, I, yeah, I just want to reiterate that, like, I think that is a way of managing your own anxiety, but also like a compassionate response, like an ethical, compassionate response. You see suffering in the world. And whether you're you or Dorothy Day or me, like, I think we all have ways of like, how do I cope with this? You know, like, how do I respond? Like, my compassion is kicking on and I need to do something with it. Um, You had a question for me. I did. Uh Uh-huh. I did. Um, I mean, to me, it's obvious Dorothy was a Jesus freak. It's obvious that I wanted to be like Dorothy. I wanted to be like a lot of people. Um, Dorothy is definitely like up there. Like what, what has it been like for you to be married to someone like me who is hype, has been hyper-religious, like did want to be a Jesus freak? How's, what has that been like for you? Yeah. You told me you were going to ask me this question. Mm-hmm. So I should have thought about it before. No, mm-hmm. I've been thinking about it. There's a lot. I mean, it's a big question. It is a big question. You're asking me to reflect on 15 years of marriage. I know. Um, you know, I think one of the things is um, is that I there's a reason that you and I ended up together. Uh, that sounds like a negative thing. There's a reason because we you're really airy. <laughs> we, there's a reason we're, so we were so drawn together. Because I was like in high school, like I was at my church, and I was like, we need to start like a club to like take care of homeless people because mm-hmm. the church isn't doing a right. fucking thing. <gasps> no, I didn't really. You but, would never. <laughs> no, I didn't. But I was like, that so- just shocked me that you swore. <laughs> I know, but that actually was the angst that I felt, okay. and I felt like I had to swear because. I think a lot of people don't know the angst that I feel inside. I'm so yes, calm. Yes, you hide it. I hide it, but I actually am fairly intense on certain things. On certain things, and that's why it's kind of amazing when it comes out, because it's really not all the time. Uh-huh, yeah. Like, you guys do not cross Christmas. That's what I'm telling you. It, so, you probably won't, because he's very... Right, yeah. I give Forgiving. Lo- I give lots of benefits of the doubt, and then it's like... Until he doesn't, and right. you will be shocked by the <laughs> slamming of that door. But it's, I mean, so that's kind of like my background. Like, I remember like yeah. being. Um, yeah, people think that you're not as intense cause, just because you're married to me. Right. Exactly. I mean, is that true or not? Yes. No, exactly. And so I, and I think even there have been times where you didn't know. Yep. Like, I underestimated you, man. How aligned I am. I just felt guilty like I was pressuring you to do things because I did pressure you to do things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that there is, I think that there's something about that, it's interesting, for you, you, I'm hesitant in saying this because you are in a place of burnout, but what I saw, especially early on before we had kids, was you actually were really, um, had this balance of like, I'm going to put myself out there and then I'm going to like, I'm going to do these things outside my comfort zone because one thing you and I have talked about recently is like a lot of the ministry we did was really outside of like, not, not even outside of our comfort zones, but like probably outside of our, I would say gifting or like natural ways of being in the world. Right. Yeah. I think about you and you've, you've 
stepped outside of kind of the natural way you would want to be in the world. And you also were able to like rest and like kind of take a break um, and have some balance. And I felt like I did that, but I didn't, didn't know how to like rest or take a break, you know? And so I feel like that aspect was impactful for me where it felt like I was really pushing myself outside my bounds, but didn't have a way to like recover from that. Um, which is the work that I've been doing the last like few years in therapy of knowing how to Mm -hmm. do that. Um, but I think the other piece is like, yeah, I think we're in alignment. Um, in a lot of ways, I think one of the biggest things that is, has been impactful is seeing you and not knowing how to support you because I don't want to gaslight you and mm-hmm. say like this isn't a big deal like this the injustice of the world isn't a big deal like you should just like rest yeah and at the same time I'm like I see what this is doing to you yeah I mean what has it done to me just really I, I would say burnt like we talked about burnout but I think really what it is is like led to some obsessive thinking Mm -hmm. and acting Mm -hmm. about what is the right way to be in the world. Mm -hmm. Like what is the most ethical way Mm -hmm. to live? And um, you grew up in white evangelicalism and they tell you, and then um, it's been looking at other communities, um, but looking at like probably the most like extreme singular view and saying that must be the truth because it is the most extreme. Yeah. What you know, so thinking about community, for example, communities of color, like that is not a monolith, right? Like people have different perspectives. But I think if you have, if you both growing up in this like Jesus freak extremism, like you have to be the most extreme, you're going to be like, well, whatever is the most extreme position must be the true position. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's such a good point. I, I'm really drawn to rigid thinkers, black and white thinkers, and people who have positions that are extreme and like unshakable. And so, you know, I've really surrounded myself with like activist Twitter, activist social media and um, in recent years just to like get through the Trump stuff. And and now I'm like, yeah, this I I'm not like denigrating anybody. And I think there's there's a room in place for all of it. But for me, it's definitely gotten to like obsessive thinking levels and really poor mental health, including like, you know, passive suicidal ideation and and i just think like so much of that is sort of normalized with people like dorothy day the books i read of people i wanted to be like even me how i wrote and and posted on social media it's like yeah like you give everything Mm -hmm. and you keep going you push yourself and all this and i'm like okay but like i wanted to die you know I, i just don't think that's good and and i'm not saying dorothy was ever like that but just there's so much that we don't talk about when it comes to mental health and how, you know, there is something called religious OCD, right? And mm-hmm. these things can become in- incredibly unhealthy thinking patterns, especially as, you know, world events are like ramping up and everything. And so, yeah, I think it's hard for me to think about all of that. But at the same time, it's kind of cool because when we met and we're dating and, and first got married, it's like, I feel like you really saw me as much more than just an intense social justice person Mm -hmm. when that's like usually how people interacted with me. 
cops, right? The yeah. do-gooder, the good neighbor, the social justice this person. This is where I want to like whisper a little like parentheses of like, I've been telling Danielle for several years now that she should just not do anything except write beautiful essays because she's really creative and like imaginative and yeah christmas works really hard and has worked really hard to try and get me to just be me um but i felt like i couldn't get off the wheel right and i couldn't do it and so you know I, i'm sure that's been really hard for you and um i don't know it just kind of makes me want to cry and i had a, I had a moment a few months ago right where um <laughs> i don't know if this is gonna make any sense to people but, like, our kids drink these huge cups of water or, like, fill it up with ice and then, like, don't drink it. And then there's, like, huge cups of water that the kids are like, well, th- that water's old now and I don't want to drink it. And I just really struggle with, like, I need to figure out the best way to use that water because water is precious. You know, the earth's water supply is dwindling. Like, I, I you know, it triggers all these thoughts of all that. And so then I have to think about, like, okay, what houseplants can I water if all of them have been watered, like, then I need to go outside and water, but which plant should I water? It just, like, turns into this whole thing. Mm-hmm. That I'm just like, this is just a cup of water. But I, like, can't dump it out. You know, I have to do all of these things. And that's just one tiny area. And that's happening to me, you know, hundreds of times a day. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just makes life really hard to live. And, like, that's where my existential OCD and being hyper-religious has led me and I'm, you know, taking steps to work on it. But all of that is like hard. It's hard. Like right after I finished writing the Dorothy Day book, I started therapy. So it's been really interesting <laughs> to, well, that you actually, know. Yeah. Leads to um, uh, my last question, which is um, you wanted to be Dorothy Day for a long time. Yeah. Now you don't. What has that what prompted that transition and what's it been like yeah i think it's it's just like i just want to be a human i think dorothy was a human and i'm a human and i love dorothy day like so much even more than when i first started the book and but i just think of her as a human now not someone I want to be like. And I want to be me and not just one part of me that I feel is acceptable and worth putting out into the world, but like me. Mm-hmm. And knowing now that I'm autistic, right? I'm like, there's a lot of me that I've had to hide or not be in touch with or feel ashamed of. And it's just like, no, I think I just get to be a human. I'm not on a cosmic battle to save the souls. I'm not here to convince white evangelicals that their theology is hypocritical and flawed. Like I'm not here to save the world or change the world. Like I'm just here. I'm here today in this room recording this with you, you know, like, and I just get to be me. Um, and I don't know. I, I mean, again, this could just be like a very specific place in time where I'm at. Um, and Dorothy's writings, especially about labor and even like Catholic church history and tradition, you know, it's like these things will continue to really stay with me, especially like I just love how not patriotic she was and just <laughs> really encouraging people to always be agitating and complaining and railing against the powers that be like, you know, there's so much that I just love about her. 
Um, but I think the things that stick with me the most are, yeah, just her being not able to conform fully, mm. you know? Mm. And those are the parts that are going to stick with me. Yeah. Yeah, well, I just want to be a human. I'm not even sure I want to be me. I'm not even there at my therapy yet. I just want to be a human. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I think that is really, really powerful and connects to the theme of this season, right? Being a Jesus freak, having to be a Jesus freak is like so much pressure like we've talked about. And yeah, and I think if you've never lived with that pressure, you don't get it. So for the... For the folks who get it, <laughs> I'm sorry, but we're here with you yeah. and we're well, going to get healthy. And guess what? Like we didn't die. We weren't martyrs. Like we're here. Like and it's okay to just be here. Hmm. It's okay to have a life that isn't about anything big. You know, mm -hmm. we just get to be here. And I wish somebody could have told Dorothy that. But she probably wouldn't have listened. You know, she was in charge of her own decisions. Uh -huh. And so she, you know, continued on. As, as someone partnered to someone like Dorothy at Who didn't points, listen. <laughs> You're say. loving my long mental breakdown, aren't you? Because now I just never leave home and I just work, work on my weird crafts and my weird essays. And you're like, yay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which I think is... You know, as much as you talk about being driven and in such a golden child of evangelicalism, when we first met, that was a lot like you. Like, I remember just being shocked that you would just, like, read the New York Times on Sunday mornings and, like, not do anything, you know? Because oh, that like, was that's, not... like, a bad Christian thing to do? Well, like, that's not how I grew up. I grew up, mm -hmm. like, you always have to be doing something. You should be busy, you know? And so even that idea of rest. Well, being... you come from a very terrible home. <laughs> That's true. With and... a really angry parent. So you had all that to deal with. But I do think, yeah, like that idea of being human and it being okay to be yourself. Like, I think that because that is the thing is as much as like. As much as we might have narratives or like systems of thinking that say otherwise, like the the it, the thing that I experienced most in white evangelicalism was like you are the problem and you need to change, mm. and I think that um, that can easily continue and uh, even as you get more progressive, uh, there still is that feeling of like you're the problem, you need to change. Yeah, and, and, and if that's true, you never get a break from that. You never have an off time. Right, and if you're sold out to Christ, give your all to Christ, and basically are taught to never be yourself. Like, yeah, what happens when you don't end up dying? Like, you end up like me, you know? Mm -hmm. Just these thoughts just spiral and grow, and they're actually fed by this Christian culture, and, and including parts of, like, Christian social justice circles. And, um, you know, I think the end result is, like, literally hating yourself mm -hmm. or trying to be like somebody else. And I, I know this is going to sound controversial, but, like, I don't want to be like Dorothy Day. And guess what? I don't want to be like Jesus anymore. Like, I I can't do it anymore. Like, mm -hmm. he's supposed to be this perfect person. Like, mm -hmm. trying to be perfect for the past 15 years, really, is when it's been ramped up, mm -hmm. has been wretched for me personally. Mm -hmm. And luckily, 
I mean, hopefully most of the harm I've done to myself and not to other people, because that kind of thinking can also harm other people. Mm -hmm. But I'm also tired of harming myself at this point, you know, and I deserve to just be me for a while. So that's my big takeaway, which is why it's it's a hard time to kind of promote this book for me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it is. I think it's a great book. And it really is like it. It. It surprised me when you pop in as narrator because so much of it is just you telling Dorothy's story in a really insightful and engaging way. I just thought it's really interesting and also like does fit a lot to like a, a lot of the issues she was facing. Did are... you learn anything about the 1930s that you thought was interesting? Um, nothing is coming to mind. Oh my gosh. Okay. But here's the reason why. Is because I was reading this book, but I was just thinking about you the whole time. What? And like, you know, how how do you relate to Dorothy? Like, oh no. You know, in what way? Like, yeah. So like, I feel like everything that I read was like as a. And I've probably told you all the things in the book. I'm not really mad that you haven't read the book because I didn't read your book at all. You know, way later too, because we just talked to each other about these things, mm-hmm. and you and our children are both. Tired of Dorothy Day. I mean, I feel like I learned, I learned, it's just, yeah, you told me things about, like, the commonalities, like fascism being on the rise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like I learned a lot about Catholicism, American Catholicism, um, and had, like, a clearer view of that. Mm. So, sorry I didn't learn things about the 30s, but I feel like I did learn a lot about, like, what is it like to be in a city where like the mayor and the police department are catholic you know like potentially you know like there's all these power structures um and it's similar to evangelicalism but way more hierarchical actually i know so it's interesting even hearing things about the priests like criticizing her and like how they were like we're trying to shut her down but like she's not she she's not actually ordained or she's anything. Tech, she's just a layperson. So she's they a layperson no claiming to... Catholicism, yes. right? Like they really she wanted not, her to change her newspaper. She's not speaking on behalf of the Catholic Church. She is saying like I'm a Catholic, and here's what I think. So amazing. So. She is so amazing. And you know, I really hope with this book, if people read it and they're like, "Yes, Dorothy's cool," like go read Dorothy's work. And hopefully my book just really sets the groundwork for The Long Loneliness. Her spiritual memoir is incredible. It was a New York Times bestseller. It's published in 1952. But it's such a book of its time. It's really hard to understand if you're someone like me. Mm. And so hopefully my book will just really set the scene. And then The Long Loneliness will make sense to people because it's so worth reading. And Dorothy's such an important person to engage with. You know, she's probably most definitely going to be a canonized saint in the next two to three years. So you'll be hearing her name in the news, you know, and uh, just pay attention to how the people in power talk about her and um, think about her own writings and how they might be at odds with what they're saying. That's what I'll say on that. (laughs) I know. I was like, we could talk a lot about her canonization. The fact that uh, New York city just named a fairy after her, like, um, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, and if you go and read Danielle's book, then you will have even more context for that. But um, yeah, we just want to celebrate you if you're listening on the day or after and want to go say congratulations on book launch day to Danielle. You should. <laughs> 
Um, if Twitter still exists. If t- <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> Danielle's giving me looks, but I'm like, you deserve to celebrate this. You okay. worked hard okay. on this book. So we're really excited for you. We will be back um, in a couple of weeks talking about Jesus Freak Track 1. We're very excited about that. And uh, we'll talk to you then. Okay. Thanks. This has been an episode of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. Become a Patreon supporter for as little as $1.50 a month and join our community with extra episodes and a Facebook group to talk about Jesus Freak, religious trauma, and growing up evangelical. You can find us online at propheticimaginationstation.com as well as Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, thanks for listening.